0: This week, SVP parties attacked seagrill plan and sale process, and Judge Rain says no to Sackler third-party releases in Purdue. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield distressed set and bankruptcy. I'm David Zubkis. Julian Boulan will be joining me for the week-in-review. Also this week, Intelsat files amended plan with support of Jackson Crossover Group, potential Johnson & Johnson Texas two-step bankruptcy take us front seat in MRS bankruptcy, and Promessa Oversight Board and Puerto Rican legislators meet to discuss Commonwealth plan of adjustment. For this week's Deep Dive, Yurks, kevin Eckhart and myself will discuss the Texas two-step bankruptcy liability management maneuver and how it may be deployed by Johnson & Johnson in the context of their MRS Talc Chapter 11 cases. It's Friday, August 27th.
1: On Monday, August 23rd, the SVP parties in the Seedrill Chapter 11 cases launched another attack at the debtor's proposed standalone single silo restructuring and plan process, objecting to the debtor's disclosure statement approval and backstop motions, and also filing a reply in further support of their motion for derivative standing to run a marketing and sale process for the NADL assets. According to the SVP party's pleadings, the debtors have received multiple bids for substantially all of the debtor's assets, with two sets of all-asset bids currently in play, including a joint bid from Transocean, Dolphin Drilling, and a third bidder for substantially all of the debtor's assets. SVP contends that it believes the debtors did not solicit Transocean to make a bid for any of the debtor's assets, and that it was Dolphin that sought out Transocean to provide a comprehensive solution. The SVP parties say that there are substantial doubts that the debtors have considered these alternative bids in good faith, as required under the PSA. The SVP party's backstop objection also discloses that the SVP parties proposed their own backstop proposal on August 18th, which appears to have expired by its terms on August 23rd. The SVP parties argue that the debtors rejected their proposal primarily because the SVP parties reserved their right to object to the plan. SVP also argues that the debtor's proposed backstop is not rationally related to the risks of the investment itself, and claims that, quote, no backstop creditor views its backstop letter commitment as a risky investment at all, but simply a mechanism to siphon value to themselves that they will then cash in on." The backstop objection also points out that "...each backstop creditor is an existing secured creditor of the debtors," as opposed to an outside investor incurring the risk of investing in a new enterprise. In their disclosure statement objection, the SVP parties argue that the DS should include the terms of competing bids for the debtors' assets and the consideration that each of the debtors' secured lender classes would receive on account of those proposed transactions, The SVP parties also contend that the DS should fairly discuss the SVP backstop proposal, noting that SVP has twice offered a materially less expensive backstop.
0: In the Amaris-Talc Chapter 11 cases on Thursday afternoon, Judge Laurie Silverstein issued a bench ruling denying the Amaris-Talc asbestos claim representative's motion to preliminarily enjoin Johnson & Johnson from undertaking a Texas divisional merger in Chapter 11, otherwise known as a Texas two-step, to spin off its talc liabilities. Judge Silverstein ruled the asbestos claimants lack standing to seek such an injunction in adversary proceeding brought by the debtors to enforce Johnson & Johnson's contractual talk and indemnification obligations. And even if they did have standing, Judge Silverstein ruled that the divisive merger that J&J is purportedly preparing to not violate the automatic stay. On Tuesday, a group of talk plaintiffs filed a state court action in Missouri seeking to block a Texas two-step by the company. Johnson & Johnson argued that the state court action is duplicative of the emeritus motion, removed the case to federal court, and filed a motion dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. A temporary restraining order hearing is scheduled for today. Meanwhile, in the DBMP Texas two-step asbestos case pending in North Carolina, the asbestos claimant representatives reacted to an opinion critical of the strategy by filing an adversary proceeding on Tuesday seeking to unravel the Texas divisional merger that created the debtor. The claimants also filed a motion for a derivative standing to bring claims to avoid the merger as a fraudulent transfer, which the debtor has said it will not pursue. We will be discussing the Texas two-step maneuver in more depth in this week's deep dive, so stay tuned for that.
1: On Tuesday, August 24th, The Intelsat debtors filed an amended plan and disclosure statement reflecting a new plan support agreement, which is now joined by the Intelsat Jackson crossover group that opposed the debtor's previous plan and sought to terminate exclusivity to file its own plan. The amended plan, according to the debtors, is supported by nearly 75% of the company's funded debt and comes after months of heated litigation, ultimately resulting in a four-month truce while the parties engaged in mediation. The amended plan provides for the debtors to emerge with $7.125 billion in new debt, Which, according to the DS, may include new term loans and new notes that may be fully backstopped by the backstop parties. The proceeds would be used for, among other things, refinancing an upsized $1.5 billion dip facility. The plan allocates 96% of reorganized equity to Jackson unsecured creditors, with holders of ICF unsecured claims receiving the remaining 4% on a pre-dilution basis. The new common stock issued on the effective date would be subject to dilution of up to 9% by the exercise of the Series A warrants, to 2.5% by the exercise of the Series B warrants and 3.26% by shares issued pursuant to the Management Incentive Plan. The ad hoc group of Intelsat SA convertible note holders remains opposed to the plan, and in an objection filed Wednesday night called the new proposal a true embarrassment and stated that the plan continues to suffer from extensive confirmation issues at Intelsat SA. The convertible group further alleges that the debtors and the plan parties quote patched up a scheme meant to jam the amended plan on the convertible notes by evading proper judicial scrutiny of key issues," end quote.
0: On Thursday, August 26, the Purdue debtors filed a 10th amended plan that expands the scope of claims excluded from third-party shareholder releases, which would protect members of the Sackler family and their affiliates from civil lawsuits. The plan changes came after Judge Drain at the confirmation here on Thursday forcefully said that he would not approve the third-party release for the Sackler family as drafted. Lawrence Fogelman for the United States argued that the third-party release is still unlawfully broad because it would release wrongful conduct unrelated to the debtor's opioid products. Judge Drain agreed, stating why. There's no money being paid for that.
1: On Tuesday, August 24th, the Premesa Oversight Board met with Puerto Rico political leaders to discuss steps needed to complete the Commonwealth's Title III bankruptcy process. Both Oversight Board and Commonwealth officials said the meeting was an important step in achieving a consensual path to exit bankruptcy. After the meeting, legislative leaders said the Commonwealth needs to reach accords with the Oversight Board and pass legislation to enable the execution of the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment during the current legislative session, which ends in November. Much of the meeting was centered on an oversight board presentation that covered the proposed plan, including its reduction of the debt load and the related upside for government coffers. The meeting also touched on the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, Puerto Rico Aqueduct and Sewer Authority, and the Puerto Rico Industrial Development Co. credits. Funding for island municipalities, the University of Puerto Rico, and public pensions were also discussed. On Wednesday, August 25th, The Puerto Rico Energy Bureau, or PREB, announced the approval of $1.8 billion in electric infrastructure projects that are part of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's 10-year plan, bringing the total infrastructure investment that PREB has approved under the plan to more than $3 billion. The 140 projects that PREB approved through an August 20th resolution comprise important and necessary investments in PREPA's transmission and distribution system, including replacing transmission lines and distribution substations. The regulatory authorities said the investment will address serious deficiencies in Puerto Rico's electric energy system. The Projects under the 10-year plan will be largely financed through a $10.7 billion settlement with FEMA for post-hurricane permanent works. The 10-year plan, which must be established as part of that settlement, provides an overview of PREPA's infrastructure investment strategy, including a prioritized list of projects, expected costs and benefits, and key project milestones and timelines. After clearing the capital on Tuesday night, Senate Bill 181 is on its way to Governor Pedro Pierluisi after being red flagged by the Permesa Oversight Board. SB 181 passed the upper chamber in early May and was approved in the House of Representatives without amendments in a 44-0 vote on Tuesday. If enacted, the proposed legislation would limit the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority's actions on various fronts, including debt, public pensions, and the University of Puerto Rico. Prior to the vote in the lower chamber, the PROMESA Oversight Board posted a letter from Executive Director Natalie Juresco citing serious concerns over SB 181 as being inconsistent with various fiscal plans and likely to impair or defeat the purposes of PROMESA.
0: Top Red Stories this week included Second Circuit Tribune opinion addresses remaining LBO appeals, affirms bankruptcy critical portions of decisions below, certain fraudulent conveyance claims against financial advisors to be reconsidered on remand. Carlson Travel negotiates RSA with bondholders to swap notes for majority ownership; requests consents for bridge liquidity. Noble announces divestment of four jackups to ADES International for 285 million in net cash proceeds. Provides updated 2021 and preliminary 2022 guidance. After pulled IPOs, the better being WCG Clinical lose significant pro forma covenant flexibility, including access to leverage based baskets. CDW Hannes Brands, Lamb Weston Initiations, multi plan primary review. And now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Good morning, and thank you for listening in, even less this week than there was last week. Starting with Monday, August 30th, final hearing in Grupo Aero, Mexico, and a cash collateral and omnibus hearing in c Tuesday, August 31st, a hearing on bankruptcy appeal in Diamond Offshore. Wednesday, September 1st, a DS hearing in Intelsat, along with earnings from Petco and Chewy. Thursday, September second, a DS SVP and backstop hearing in C drill and final hearing in Alpha Holding, and Friday, September third, confirmation hearing on the equitization plan for Washington Prime, and that's it for me. Back to New York, and next up, New York's Kevin Eckhart and I discuss the so-called Texas two-step bankruptcy liability management maneuver, how judges in recent bankruptcy cases have treated it, and how it's being deployed by Johnson and Johnson in the context of the Imerys talc Chapter 11 cases. I'm here with uh, Kevin Eckhart, senior legal analyst for America's Court Credit, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, the Texas two step, and um, because it's been in the news recently in a couple of bankruptcy cases. And um, Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about what this the Texas two step actually is from a bankruptcy con- context?
2: Yeah, well, it, it's the, the easiest thing to do is to start with how mass tort bankruptcies work. Um, like Mallinckrod or PG&E companies that file because they've got $20 billion and people suing them for having done some sort of corporate misbehavior, selling opioids, burning down a bunch of towns, that kind of thing. Well, what they'll usually do, like Malincrot and PG&E, is they file the whole company and then they try to get releases in the Chapter 11 plan for any non-debtors that that may also have fault, um, but... um, are contributing something to the reorganization to buy a release. So it's they'll file the whole company. You know, PG&E files the whole company. They get their plan confirmed. They confine all those claims to a trust. They drop a billion dollars in it, and they, um, and they get a discharge from the bankruptcy court. Well, they, people have been trying to figure out ways around this so that companies that are not bankrupt, um, the example we're going to talk about here is Johnson & Johnson companies that are not bankrupt that have huge amounts of these liabilities, um, the, the classic thinking was that they could not file for bankruptcy or would not, because if they were to file the whole company to get rid of those, Johnson & Johnson's problem is talc liabilities. It turns out Johnson's baby powder is basically asbestos. Um, they would have to lose all the equity value, You know, their stock would plummet, it would become useless and worthless. They'd have problems with vendors. You Bankruptcy is not worth it for them to file to get rid of these liabilities, even though bankruptcy is a great place to do so. So some smart lawyers got to thinking uh, the the, the idea really comes out of Jones Day. They've been the pioneers of the Texas two-step. And they looked at a statute in Texas called the Texas Divisional Merger Statute. And what this provides is it's just an innocuous corporate law, LLC law statute that says that a company... Can divide itself up using a merger and call it a merger. So the way it works is, company old co files incorporates in Texas, then files for a Texas divisional merger to split itself up into two companies. Pretty simple. The trick is that the statute also has some random verbiage. It's it's kind of a quirk, and it's only in Texas. It, there's a, there's a version in Delaware, but it, nobody thinks it works that says that that merger is not a quote, transfer. So what the Jones Day guys got to thinking was, well, the company could go into the Texas divisional merger, break itself up into two companies, one with all the good stuff, all the good operations, all the profitable operations, and a shell company, the bad company, uh, or a friend from singing, um, the bad company would carry all the liabilities. That's the first step of the Texas two-step. So there, there have been several cases that have been filed this way, four of them all in the Western District of North Carolina, all asbestos cases. But use those because that's already happened. I'll use as, as an example of how this works. A company called DBMP is a debtor in Charlotte. And DBMP used to be a comp- part of a company called CertainTeed, and they manufactured products that contained asbestos. So they hired Jones Day. Jones Day says, let's do a Texas divisional merger. They reincorporate CertainTeed Inc., the old profitable company that also had a ton of asbestos liabilities. They reincorporated in Texas. An hour later, they do a Texas divisional merger, splitting that company up into two companies. One's called DBMP and one's called CertainTeed LLC. So the company... All the valuable operations of old certainty go into CertainTeed LLC. All the asbestos liabilities go into DBMP. Um, DBMP, so that's the first step of the Texas two-step. They've created two new companies, and then they immediately reincorporate elsewhere. So Teed LLC leaves Texas, becomes a Delaware company. DBMP becomes a North Carolina company. They're only Texas entities for about four hours. So, and and this this,
0: is a, and this is a new thing, right? Like this, the the DBMP case is a new, is.
2: Yeah, it was filed in 20. The, the, the divisional merger was done in 2019 in October of 2019. Again, four hour cruise through Texas law. And that's the first step. They reincorporate DBMP out of Texas. So it's a Texas LLC, but they just convert it to a North Carolina LLC because they want to file in Charlotte. The reason being there's some, there's some friendly uh, case law for asbestos companies in Charlotte. So not entirely applicable to the, the Johnson & Johnson situation that we're going to talk about. So they reincorporate in Charlotte and wait 90 days because you have to be a resident of the district, the judicial district, where you want to file for 90 days. That's why people who want to file in White Plains. They open a P.O. box in an office mm-hmm. building there, and on the 91st day, Purdue files there so they can get judge trained. So you have this, uh, you have this setup where now you have two companies, one with all the opio, I'm sorry, opium, one with all the talc li- uh, <laughs> still not right, right the asbestos, asbestos liabilities, and one with all the profitable operations that then just goes off and does the same thing it used to do, except it doesn't have any asbestos liabilities, right? This is like a dream transaction for a company. They can keep their valuable assets. While throwing off their liabilities. Now, that can be done under any state's law, right? Any state will allow a company to split up the two companies and allocate its assets and liabilities. The problem with that is it's usually a fraudulent transfer, right? If you have a company that has valuable assets and a bunch of liabilities, you send the assets over there, you leave the liabilities over here. It's a fraudulent transfer. And the creditors of the company that lost all its assets can then sue to recover all those assets. So it gets undone pretty quickly. Um, you see that in the Tronox case, there was like a $13 billion fraudulent transfer where they tried to do a spin-off of some environmental liabilities and the creditors challenged it in bankruptcy court and unsurprisingly lost the magic of the Texas divisional merger statute, at least um, at least nominally and we'll get into why maybe this all doesn't work. Um, is that it's, it has that provision I mentioned that says this merger under this statute, it's not a quote transfer. Mm-hmm. And they, so that what they say is, aha, it's not a fraudulent transfer because it's not a transfer. It's a merger. It's not a uh, sending all the assets over here and the assets, all the liabilities over there. Nothing was transferred. It's just, uh, you know, something else because of this, strange language in the statute. So they have filed three of these cases, Jones Day in in North Carolina. There's uh, the original one was Best Wall LLC, um, which was spun off from Georgia Pacific for his bestest liabilities. And then there are are two other cases that are combined, Aldrich Pump and um, another case called uh, a boiler manufacturer. They both spun out of um, of train technologies, the air, which most people think of as an air conditioning manufacturer, right? So they did the same thing in all these cases. All three of these cases: DBMP, Bestwall, Aldrich Pump. They've reincorporated them in Texas, split them up into two different companies under the divisional merger statute. Sent all the asbestos liabilities to one, sent all the the uh, assets to the other, and then they reincorporated the good one in Delaware they reincorporated the bad one the one with all the liabilities and no assets in North Carolina and then they filed a chapter 11 in North Carolina 91 days later for just the bad company mm-hmm. so you have again if it works it's like every bankruptcy lawyer's dream it's it's a situation where you've thrown off tort liability at no cost and to protect this you know they know the statute it says it's not a transfer Um, they know there may be holes in it. So what they do, they do take a couple other steps to try and justify the transaction. They will enter into a funding agreement between the good co and the bad co where the good company says, we're going to pay all your asbestos liabilities. It sounds like it kind of kills the whole point of the transaction because if the good company with the good assets has to pay the asbestos liabilities, the bad company, why'd you go through this? Well, the funding agreement has enough holes in it to drive a truck through and it only applies... Um, when the parent company says so. So it's just illusory, but it's there for them to say, oh, there's this promise to pay the debts. So you have these cases and the North Carolina courts that have been handling these, these three cases have basically declined to dismiss them, but spent the whole cases saying, we think this is a little screwy. And on August 10th, uh, Judge Craig Whitley in Charlotte, who's overseen the DBMP case, entered a decision saying basically, yeah, I think this is a fraudulent conveyance. It is clearly taking all of the good assets, sending them over there, sending all the liabilities over here. And he went through the history of the Texas statute and said, hey, the, the not using the word transfer is not dispositive. The statute also says it preserves creditors' rights. The guy who wrote the statute wrote a law review article saying, no, that's not what this was for. I don't think this is a bankruptcy strategy. This That's just a totally irrelevant thing. Yes, it can still be a fraudulent transfer. But people are still thinking about the idea. It, it is yet to be litigated that way. Um, Judge Whitley said, I think it's a fraudulent transfer. I'm not going to say anything about it. Somebody's going to have to bring a fraudulent transfer action.
0: Right, because and I, I mean, I would assume that it would be Texas fraudulent transfer law, right? And then has it ever been tested where... Where the Texas fraudulent transfer law is matched up with its Texas, right? This weird Texas merger. Right. No, no, it hasn't. It hasn't.
2: It It has never been been adjudicated. Right. So everything Judge Whitley is going on is sort of legislative intent um, statements by the people behind drafting the statute. But, you know, what Jones Day will probably say or anybody else who wants to do this is plain language of the statute says it's not a transfer. How can it be a fraudulent transfer if it's not under applicable state law, a transfer? Um, And that is a completely open question. Mm -hmm. So finally, after these cases have sort of been dragging around doing nothing for a couple of years. uh, Last week or earlier this week on Tuesday, the asbestos creditors in the DBMP case filed a motion basically to invalidate the whole divisional merger. They filed a motion for derivative standing to call it a fraudulent transfer and bring that claim. And then they filed a very interesting action to substantively consolidate DBMP, the bad company debtor that got all the liabilities with uh, Best Wall LLC, the good company that is, I'm sorry, not Best Wall LLC, um, uh, the... I'm getting I'm getting the original companies here mixed up certitude LLC they want to combine the good company and the bad company back together in the bankruptcy court which again would just scotch the whole thing so they finally filed motions that will start the process of testing this out meanwhile while this is going on back on July 19th someone leaks to Reuters and it got picked up elsewhere that Johnson and Johnson was threatening to do this, to get rid of their talc liabilities, that they were thinking of doing a Texas divisional merger, um, taking Johnson and Johnson Inc, the big Johnson and Johnson, which obviously does not want to file for bankruptcy because it would create all kinds of problems for a solvent business, putting it, making it a Texas entity, splitting it into good company, bad company, and sending bad company to go file for bankruptcy somewhere it doesn't have to be North Carolina because it's not asbestos. Um, mm-hmm. This was presumably something that was discussed in the settlement negotiations for the talc. I'm sure the company probably issued this as a threat, uh, but the company's not denied that they're thinking of doing this. They have been. They have said things like, "We're continuing to litigate it and, con- and considering all options." And their lawyers in the lawsuit, which I'll get to in a second, have not said anything about we're not going to do this. We're probably not going to do this. This isn't how we're going to do this. Um, so it sounds like a legit threat by Johnson & Johnson. And they're now spending a lot of money defending this in litigation because a, another Chapter 11 company called Emeris Talk. This is a company that ran a talc mine. It was part of Johnson & Johnson for 30 years, and they sold all of the talc Johnson & Johnson uses in its consumer products came from this mine. It was spun off 30 years ago, and it then filed for bankruptcy about a year ago under the burden of all these talc lawsuits because people are suing J&J, and they're going to sue the ultimate mining company that dug this stuff out of the ground and gave it to J&J. This company claims that it has $400 billion in claims against J&J for its own talc liability. So what they're saying is, we've got a contract that says Johnson & Johnson has to indemnify us for whatever we pay to these talc claimants, and it's $400 billion. Ameris got wind of this whole strategy and filed a lawsuit against Johnson & Johnson last week to not only enforce... Uh, the indemnification obligations to try to say we have a valid claim against Johnson & Johnson, but to prevent them from filing a Texas two-step bankruptcy. So the asbestos claimants in that case, they got they got an official committee, filed a motion in that lawsuit asking Judge Silverstein in Delaware, who's overseeing the Ameris Chapter 11, to issue an injunction saying, Johnson & Johnson, you can't do this. You cannot send yourself to texas for the purpose of being split into good co and bad co and then leave us holding the bag against bad co while good co goes on with its life pays dividends pays off its debt and ignores us and their theory was that since they have a contractual indemnification claim against johnson and johnson it would be a violation of the automatic stay for johnson and johnson to file to pull this Texas two-step maneuver to get out of its indemnification obligations. Um, yesterday at a hearing, there was there was a some oral argument on this on August 24th on Tuesday, and then yesterday afternoon at a hearing, um, Judge Silverstein denied this motion. Said we're not going to let I'm not going to tell Johnson and Johnson not to undergo a restructuring that, while maybe a fraudulent transfer while maybe a total scam to um, jam these asbestos claimants is under Texas law completely legal, is something people can do. Um, Like the judges in Charlotte, she seems inclined to say, until I have that fraudulent conveyance lawsuit in front of me, until I have people suing for this, I'm going to say I don't like the sound of this, but I'm not going to either dismiss a case based on it, or prevent somebody else from doing it. So Johnson & Johnson is not out of the woods yet. There, there is, in the middle of the week, on Tuesday, the uh, another group of talc plaintiffs filed a state court action in St. Louis, trying to get a similar injunction, saying this is going to be a fraudulent conveyance, so don't let them do it. Johnson & Johnson immediately removed that to federal court, filed a motion to dismiss, there should be a hearing probably next week on a temporary restraining order. Um, there's a hearing among the lawyers this afternoon that we're not allowed to attend um, in, in total violation of our First Amendment um, rights to access to the courts. But um, we'll see. We'll know more about that next week. So the the status on this is it's still untested, but um, they're getting close to the laboratory. They have swiped their key card at the outside of the laboratory. They're putting on their coats and in the next several months, we should have some experimental results on whether there is this magical, really astonishing way of of otherwise valuable corporations just tossing off the liabilities for their gross misbehavior.
0: Yeah, I, I thought it was. I mean, it, it's it in and of itself, it's this prophylactic right measure that you you take. In advance, right? In advance of a potential filing, or to, I guess to head off a of filing. But I thought it was really interesting that, like, in Judge, I look, I I looked at Judge um, Judge Silverstein's um, her discussion of it, and she had asked, you know, in terms of using the stay to stop them from doing it. She made she made this interesting point where she's like, "Can I stop? Can I enjoin a non-debtor for making a poor investment decision or yeah. taking some other yeah. action that could reduce I, assets available to satisfy it?" I mean, that's just an, an interesting you know, uh, examination of what the stay can do, like, you know,
2: how how, how forward looking can it really be, right? I mean, it's what's interesting is usually bankruptcy judges don't bother to question even for a second that the automatic stay applies to everything. Right. Um, but even this seemed too far for yeah. a Delaware judge, bankruptcy judge to go. The other example she used was, what if uh, a big mall developer, she said Simon Properties, but then was like, don't t- take me on that. I don't know anything about that. Um, she said, what if a big mall developer has some some tenants in bankruptcies? they've got a forever twenty one they've got a a twenty four hour fitness, but they want to sell the mall. Can the tenants who are in chapter eleven run to the bankruptcy court and say, no, they can't sell this mall because that we have a contract with them. They have obligations, yeah. and it would violate the automatic stay and and I guess the to that, which i I don't think they've got got a a, a fair airing at the hearing because the hearing, um, which I attended and wrote up was so philosophical <laughs> for lack of a better word. There was a lot of meandering discussion, which I understand because it's such a novel, uh, a novel theory, but there was a lot of discussion about sort of what is corporate freedom? What is corporate autonomy? How far does it go? How far does bankruptcy the bankruptcy of one party? And then, you know, the judge brought up what if, what if, Johnson & Johnson files this company in bankruptcy in another district and I say it's a fraudulent transfer, that would mean that judge basically has to dismiss that case. Like, how does that even work? Do I call them? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're filing. Right, they're filing. I, but I, th- I think the way to maybe argue for the injunction is, and, and this sort of got aired, is to say, look, you know, compare it to a situation. We all learned this in law school and we studied it for the bar exam. When you have an assignment of a contract, I, I am running a uh, a car dealership and I I agree to um, sell all of my cars to Hertz and Hertz agrees to pay me in full 30 days after delivery. So I'm extending credit to them and I say, oh, it's fine. It's Hertz. And I am not don't mean to sing, single out Hertz or anything like that. But, I, you know, I trust that Hertz is a large enough company now shorn of its debt that it can uh that it can pay me. I file for bankruptcy and Hertz decides, ah, we don't really, you know, we've accrued a couple months of past due. We owe him 10 million bucks, but we don't we don't really want to pay it. So let's just assign our obligations under this contract to someone else, to Bob, Bob down the hall. You know? we'll, we'll assign it to him. Yeah, assign it to him. Yeah, it's his. Now he's the one who owes you money and not us. You can't do that. I mean, that's you, you can't generally abrogate your contractual responsibilities by assigning them to a third party and just walking away. You're still on the hook. And that's essentially what peeling away the sort of Texas divisional merger automatic stages. That's essentially what uh, Johnson & Johnson is thinking of doing. They have a contractual indemnity ob- obligation to ameris and they don't want to pay it. So they're going to foist it on some new company that comes out of this Texas divisional merger. That's just the the structure for this to happen, for the assignment to happen. Should a bankruptcy court let that happen if they know it's going to happen? It starts to get a little, that seems off. Now, of course, let's assume that that's a problem. That doesn't help the vast majority of mass tort claimants, right? If If you've got 10,000 individuals suing you for talc liability, that contract's not there, so you don't have the same issue. What's unique here is you've got a contractual tort liability, basically, through the indemnification agreement. So it could have been narrowed to say, look, they can do a Texas divisional merger, they can do whatever they want, but they can't assign this contract. They can't assign their obligations under this contract to a third party. That seems vaguely defensible to me. I'm just devil's advocate. I, I think it's too far for bankruptcy courts to go. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think ninety nine percent of what bankruptcy courts do. I, I gotta say half of what I see bankruptcy courts do every day nowadays, watching all these cases twenty years ago when I started practicing would have been unthinkable. So maybe in ten years, the automatic stay will extend that far. Um, but I think it will depend on what happens in the North Carolina cases and and, If the judges in those cases start avoiding these things as fraudulent transfers, ironically, no one's going to enjoin them because they're going to say, well, you can just avoid it if it turns out to be a fraudulent transfer. If they say, no, this isn't a fraudulent transfer, it's a totally legit way of getting out of these debts. Then you're going to see judges maybe consider enjoining them ahead of time (laughs) because there won't be a remedy for the, the claimants in the future. But I mean, everything, you know, it's like everything has its has give and take. The the debtors figure something out, and the creditors will figure something out to get around it,
0: right? And 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 but all, and not to get too far afield. But in the long game, right? For Johnson and Johnson, right? I mean, this this would obviously, if they were suc- able to do this successfully, it helped them. But then in the end, right? The idea is is that for the, I guess the spun off. It's not a spin off, right? I don't want to say spin off because spin offs exist, and this is different for the divided company,
2: right? Yeah, well, the, the way it usually works, and and counsel from while who represents Johnson and Johnson says this isn't the way it has to work, but this is the way it worked in the North Carolina cases. There, the there is is not a surviving company. The old company gets split into and disappears. So I guess it's a it's it, it's a merger that is effectively a demerger, but under Texas law they call it a merger.
0: <laughs> but but in the but in the end, what would happen? What Survive let's say surviving Johnson and Johnson, right? They would be trying to get
2: right released in through that. Well, no, they wouldn't see they wouldn't need to, they wouldn't need to because they're all they're not their liabilities. They threw they're a totally new company. They don't they didn't get anything, they're just a fresh Mm -hmm. as a baby into the manger. They don't need a release because all of their liabilities were laundered through the merger and sent over there to the debtor. They can so just ma- walk away. They don't have to contribute anything. That's the magic. You just kind of got to something I didn't mention earlier, which, is you know, I mentioned usually, you know, the Sacklers are paying 4.5 billion right. for their non-debtor right. releases. They wouldn't have to pay a thing because they don't have though any liabilities. They don't need a release. They were all basically put into a box They dug a hole in the ground, buried them in there, and they don't care what happens after that. Now they have this funding agreement, right? Now I'll I'll mention the funding agreement whereby they say, we're gonna pay um, the bad company's liabilities, us good company. Judge Whitley in his August 10th decision in DBMP went through how this really isn't an agreement because it only applies if the, there's two huge problems. It only applies if they get a release so in other words, they have a funding agreement, but the only time they ever have to pay is when they get exactly what they want—the release. Which so if the creditors challenge the bankruptcy, a plan doesn't—the plan they like doesn't get confirmed. They can walk away. They only have to pay what they agree to pay. <laughs> and and it- the other problem is to enforce this agreement. It's an agreement between Bad Co and New Co, and and, and uh, Good Co, and so. In order for Bad BadCo to get the money from GoodCo, they'd have to sue GoodCo to get that money. But they're never going to do that because they're controlled by the same officers and directors that control GoodCo. Let me give you an example. In the, in the DBMP case, what they did is CertainTeed creates CertainTeed LLC, the good new company, and DBMP, the dead or bad company. All DBMP doesn't have any employees. It has a secondment agreement whereby all of its employees are provided by good company. And all of its officers and directors are from a company called St. Gobain, which is the ultimate parent of all of these companies. So why would those directors of the debtors ever approve a lawsuit to enforce that funding agreement against Certainty LLC for whom their employees. <laughs> the judge pointed out that makes no sense. They're never going to enforce this agreement. It's it's totally gratuitous and illusory. So, I mean, they they get that release. They just don't don't ever pay anything and just say no. You know, go ahead. You have your debt. Your bankruptcy. Sue us for the fraudulent conveyance. If you lose, you get nothing. So the viability of this Texas two step is potentially even
0: more important, right? These days because. We have floating around. I know it's happened before; it never comes to fruition. But you have this, right? The Non-Debtor Release Prohibition Act, right?
2: Which yeah, this yeah. would
0: this would kind of solve that problem—that solve litigation. Yeah, it would, it would
2: mean you never need to do a non-debtor release. Yeah. So you, you so imagine the Sacklers own Purdue; they can just reincorporate Purdue in Texas, split it up into new Purdue and old Purdue. All of the valuable assets, you know, I don't know what the valuable assets of Purdue are, probably some foreign subsidiaries, some intellectual property rights. But anyway, they spin those off into new co. Old co gets all the opioid liabilities. The Sacklers own the new co, they walk away and they don't have to pay 4.5 billion for a release. They just file a bankruptcy in White Plains or wherever they want for the Bad Co. and say, and, and have this bogus funding agreement to give them a little fig leaf and then walk away without paying anything. Yeah. Now, Sackler's maybe not the perfect example because they have the, the plaintiffs have asserted direct claims against them for direct involvement. Um, but it, you can see it's a good illustration of exactly what this would be capable of. Yeah. I mean, Mallinckrodt could have just divided itself up into, it could have split up its specialty generics business, which sold opioids, its specialty brand segment, which sold Actar and the other valuable stuff, put them through this Texas divisional merger washing machine. One of them comes out sparkly clean and all the dirt has been absorbed by the other one and they just file the other one and walk away. Do
0: you know it? Do you know it?
2: Don't, do you know don't it? To, sorry, sorry, Go yeah. ahead. So do no,
0: you know no. is, is this is the statute, is the divisional merger statute new? Like why why is no, it,
2: it now it, a new thing? It, it I mean, look, lawyers are trained that if I mean I was, you know, you always had that second year associate when I was a senior associate in an of counsel, I you know, the second year associate would bust in and say, Look at this statute. I think I figured it out. I found a magical way mm-hmm. to get around our problem. I'd say, go back and look some more. There's no magical ways. Lawyers are smart. There's a lot of $1,200 an hour guys looking at bankruptcy. If this was the magic bullet, why didn't anybody do it before? Um, So I think you had a lot of people who, first of all, a lot of people didn't even check. Second of all, a lot of people went, ah, no. I mean, come on. How do you have this magical way of transfer? For statutes, that that just doesn't make any sense, right? So, and I think that that attitude is probably going to be correct. Bankruptcy judges aren't going to let this happen, right? They they may be friendly to debtors. We criticize or or wonder at the motivations of bankruptcy judges all the time and handle big cases and are friendly to the debtors. And, you know, we, we have this issue come up all the time. But in the end, they generally will not allow shortcuts. They Mm -hmm. don't allow gadget plays. They don't allow loopholes to swallow the rules because they are a court of equity and they have a a relatively large amount of freedom to say, nah, that's just not cool. And so I think it will be with this. I, I think in the end, what you're going to see is that this is going to be worked out as a fraudulent transfer or settlements will be paid and it will be digested by the bankruptcy machine and spit out as something more palatable and technical. I mean, at the very least, if it doesn't work, it has at the very least stalled out um, all of those asbestos claimants lawsuits against these companies for two years now. Even if the case was dismissed tomorrow, even if it's deemed a fraudulent transfer, uh, train technologies and Georgia Pacific and CertainTeed have use the bankruptcy of an affiliate they just created to stall all of these asbestos claims for two years. And there's value in that, too, even if they have to eventually say, "Ah, well, we'll dismiss the case because it's not going to work. They've used the automatic stay against these creditors using this statute, even if they can't necessarily use it to get out in the end. And, and, and time is money for these guys. You know, I used to work for defendants and they'll tell you the longer you go without paying, that's a win. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it could. Yeah, like you're saying, it it could just be a blip.
0: That you know, we'll talk about the Texas two-step right wave of late (laughs) 2021. But Uh, I I mean, there are probably other bankruptcy like you know mainstays now that maybe started as a crazy
2: blip like this. Who knows? Well, absolutely. I mean, that nobody. I can only speak for myself. 20 years ago, it was not seen. The idea of the mass tort bankruptcy as we see it, the Mallinckrodt cases, the Purdue cases, it was not seen as a a given thing that you would get this release. And so there were companies that didn't file Chapter 11 to get rid of tort liabilities because they were worried that they would not get a non-consensual third-party release. It was not seen. There are a lot of those innovations. And what usually happens is if they're too dangerous, if they're too good, Right. If it's like this Texas two-step the way they want it to work, if it's that effective, bankruptcy judges will figure a a way out around it. But if it's kind of effective, it gets incorporated. It's an innovation. It gets adopted and becomes standard practice. And then 20 years later, you look around and there's a bunch of every defendant in every mass tort case is constantly threatening Chapter 11 and threatening to do a Purdue and Congress is arguing about it. Um, I'm trying to think of another good example of a, of a bankruptcy innovation. I mean, critical vendor motions was another that's, one that came up. I mean, yeah. you, there's a reason no cases get filed in Chicago anymore, and that's because in the Seventh Circuit said you can't do critical vendor payments without some re- satisfying some really serious evidentiary requirements. Yeah. Well, you but have the air, l-
0: the airline bankruptcies. I mean, that's not specific, you know.
2: Yeah, it was United. The, I think was the case, I and then it just United, became
0: K-Mart. a. It became but, a way of doing right it's standard for airline. It's part of being an airline. Is that you? It's part of file. being a debtor,
2: period. Yeah. Every mm-hmm. debtor has critical vendors. In fact, it's gone even further. I mean, I re- I remember when if you did a critical vendor motion, even if the judge let you get away with it, which was never a given, you had to provide a list of the critical vendors and how much you were going to pay them. Mm-hmm. You had to disclose that. You'd say, "I'm going to pay Bob, the AvGas supplier, two million dollars because I need gas." Now you don't even see that. I mean, judges will let debtors say, "I want ten million dollars in a total kitty for critical vendors," mm-hmm. and I'm going to go out and I'm going to find the vendors that want to continue working with me on my terms, and I'm going to pay them up to a total of ten million dollars. And you'll, you, the judge. We'll never know who they were, right. how much they got paid. You just—they just give the debtor a, a, a basically a slush fund to pay pre-petition claims without ever looking at them. And someone has brought this up. This, this came up in a cert petition in front of the Supreme Court in the last few months. Someone is challenging a vendor in a bankruptcy case. I can't remember which one it is challenging. The critical vendor motion saying this is a total abrogation of what the bankruptcy court is supposed to do, which is to evaluate claims and be a fact finder. It's the bankruptcy court is just handing over its, its claims adjudication responsibilities to the debtor without any notice. Um, and the problem is, you know, equitable mootness is their problem. Their, their appeals have all been dismissed on equitable mootness grounds, but it's just a good example of a doctrine that has that was was unheard of. I, and I- I appeared mean, in very limited circumstances, and now is so unlimited that we don't even cover. Like we don't even pay attention to those motions. No. Well, I We're just I, look I, for the dollar amount. I remember when I took a bankruptcy
0: class. I, th- I believe that, and and I think it was forbidden to have roll ups. but yeah. the, ro- oh. the roll up is now standard. There's a creeping roll up, but roll up is a normal thing. Like no one challenges a roll up now. It's an well, that, admin claim. You, you know,
2: you hear Judge Jones or I, I think it was Judge Isgar in a hearing. I was at a last year, or a few months ago, said, you know, I really, I don't like when the roll up is just as large as the new money. And it's right. like, well, oh, I guess bold statement when before you couldn't roll anything up. I started out practicing the 11th circuit. I was in Miami and the 11th circuit won't allow didn't allow cross-collateralization, the Chase and Sanborn decision in a dip. And that alone has kept people from filing the 11th circuit. There's a dozen other reasons not to file there, but, but that was the thing. You never saw that. You're right. You never. And it wasn't because you, you ask, why didn't anybody do the Texas two-step before? Is this a new statute? It wasn't because the statute said no roll-ups. It's because of what I just said. Some smart second year ran into the room and said, hey, why don't we just roll up the debt and call it post-petition debt, right? And the partner went, ah, get, get out of here, kid. You can't do that. That's obviously ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, it's not, it's not going to work. Okay. No judge okay. is going to approve that. And then eventually some partner said, yeah, let's try it. See if it works. And once it does, everybody else does it. You know, the, the dead or dive was another example. I remember when cases didn't have this situation at the beginning of the case in the dip order where they agreed to the enforceability of everything subject to a 60 day challenge period. You know, you, you had to still defend your claim, your pre-petition claim. But yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, in bankruptcy, where there's not a whole lot of statutory law and where there's a lot of weird state law grafted in, a good idea can be tried out immediately and assimilated. But sometimes it doesn't just because nobody thinks it's going to work. And maybe that's the Texas two-step. Nobody thought it was going to work. You know, Jones Day, again, I don't know if they exclusively developed this, but they filed all the cases. And the hiring by Jones Day of Johnson and J- Johnson and Johnson hired Jones Day. That's what made this seem very serious because everybody said, ah, they're the Texas two step guys. There you go. And someone there thought, nah, yeah, let's give it a shot after being told, probably after being told, nah, it's not going to work. It's going to be their poison pill. They're going to get forever people will be talking about how yeah, but again, if it works perfectly, it. if it works perfectly, bankruptcy judges will dial it back to reestablish what they see as the proper power balance between creditors and debtors. I think most bankruptcy judges think a lot, most of the ones I've talked to at least, think a lot about the balance between debtors and creditors and avoiding and and not letting that balance get too far out of whack. And so they're not going to let the debtors completely get away with this. They'll figure out a way to trim it down, but it may be you know, a modification and not a total erratic, eradication of the idea. I mean, so
0: because given the like cluster of these cases that we're looking at right now, and the speed at which they're moving, we'll, we
2: should know right Sh- soon. Well,
0: well, they like weren't moving wh-
2: fast, but they're moving fast now.
0: Yeah, so we, we should haven't know been
2: covering them very, very carefully because they haven't been dealing with the big issues. They've been fighting over things like estimation of asbestos claims and retention of of officers and directors. But yeah, we should know, you know, pretty soon. If we'll see what Judge Whitley rules on this motion in DBMP. Um, if he grants the committee, the, uh, the asbestos committee, they're standing to avoid the the whole transaction as a fraudulent transfer. They're going to bring a lawsuit, and you know we'll see a solution to that. Uh, six months to a year, you know, bankruptcy. I, I know I've practiced in Charlotte. I know Judge Whitley moves fast. I've seen it. I've been the the target of his ire. Um, so I think he you know could get it resolved pretty quickly. And he knows he knows this is a big deal. He knows this is going on, and that this is something a lot of people are watching. So I think, you know, if he doesn't give them standing, though, we know very quickly. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because we all know the debtor's not going to bring that fraudulent conveyance suit because all their employees come from the defendant. Right. Right. (laughs) So if he says no, the committee doesn't have standing, I don't think he's going to. I think he's already sort of telegraphed that he's going to give them standing. And then we'll have to watch that litigation for a while. But then if they settle, we'll have to see it the next time. I mean, at the very least, it may have generated settlement leverage for um for the the companies there and it may work for Johnson and Johnson. I mean, at the least that it, it's a win yeah, for it's them. Delay. No it's delay. It's delay and leverage. And that is those are the two, I'd say the two most powerful tools of the bankruptcy debtor. They're the two most powerful tools of the the debtor outside of bankruptcy. Once you're in bankruptcy, you want to move as fast as possible. Um, but outside of bankruptcy, delay, leverage, delay, leverage, and it works. All right. Well,
0: listen, it's been a fascinating journey. And <laughs> I think we might, I mean, we might, we might have to follow up on it. Let's see what, let's see where these, yeah, all this. no, yeah, definitely.
2: Up. We'll see. We'll see more next week in that Missouri case and see if maybe a district judge um, views this a little differently than a bankruptcy judge like Judge Silverstein.
0: All right. All right, Kevin. Thanks a lot and uh we'll we'll see you next time no problem talk to you later dave anyway thank you again for listening to this reorg weekly review find all our podcasts on the reorg.com webinars and podcast page as well as spotify itunes and soundcloud hope your families are healthy and safe have a great weekend and see you next friday